Welcome Village Mentality, where melanated people are connected in spirit, love, and community. What's up, kings and queens? Beautiful people everywhere. It's your girl, C.K. McGee, and I am your host. How's everybody doing out there? I pray that you are all doing as well as you can be. Well, you know me. I like to take a little bit of time to talk about some things, whether it's about current events, entertainment, or something that's just on my mind. So why don't we get into my segment called, Let's Talk About It. Now, before I continue, in this segment, there are a few little oopsies that I would like to correct <laughs> um, from last week's show. The first one is when I was talking about Shonda Rhimes and her involvement with the Time's Up movement. I mistakenly said that it was June 1st, 2018, but it was actually January 1st. 2018, that she became involved with the Time's Up movement. So I do apologize for that mistake. They both begin with J's. Um, count it to my head and not my heart. <laughs> and then the other correction, the other oopsie that I'd like to correct has to do with the midterm elections. I was talking about the 2024 election with uh, 45, and the fact that he's doing everything that he can to gain all of his political support to be involved in that election. But I also made mention of the fact that we cannot sleep on the midterm election, which is coming up. And I said 2020, but I meant to say 2022. So thank you for allowing me to make those minor corrections. And speaking of voting and elections, Major League Baseball will be moving its all-star game out of the city of Atlanta, the state of Georgia passed voting bills that will disproportionately affect citizens of color, an action that Commissioner Rob Manfred this past Friday said is the best way to demonstrate our values as a sport. It is being said that this all-star game will be moved to Denver. But of course, the governor of Georgia had something to say about that. Governor Kemp states that the state of Colorado has more restrictive voting laws than Georgia does. Imagine that. Major League Baseball's removal of one of its jewel events, which this year will also include the draft for the first time, comes after a year in which the COVID-19 pandemic and the killing of George Floyd by a former Minneapolis police officer caused the sports industry to reconsider its influence within society. Notably, the four states where the greatest number 
of voting restriction bills have been filed are in Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. And that's where some of the closest races were in last year's presidential election. They all voted for President Biden. And it was the first time Georgia and Arizona voted for a Democratic presidential candidate in over two decades. And they have Republican-controlled legislatures, which makes them especially fertile ground for new voting restrictions. At this point, the most concerted effort appears to be centered on rolling back absentee voting, which shifted significantly toward Democrats in 2020, and it helped Biden to clinch victory. Now, to some extent, given the expansion of absentee voting during the pandemic and Republican voters' skepticism of it, it is not that surprising Republicans are primarily targeting this type of voting. But absentee ballots have been largely uncontroversial when they were used by older, whiter, Republican-leaning Americans. But as soon as communities of color started using them, we are all of a sudden starting to see all of these restrictions. Hmm. And up until the 2020 election, there really hadn't been a partisan split in which party used mail-in voting. Nevertheless, a near majority, 49% of the voter, uh, the voter restrictions that have been introduced included provisions to restrict absentee voting. Now, the second biggest category was bills that included some form of a voter ID law, 23% of the bills act. Now, of course, requiring people to show proof of identity before voting has long been a policy that has been a priority for Republicans who claim it's necessary to combat voter fraud. And Democrats, on the other hand, argue it's a way to prevent a disproportionately non-white, Democrat-leaning demographic from voting. In other words, it's designed to keep Black people and all people from color, as a matter of fact, from voting. Because when we showed up to the polls in 2020, we flipped the script and they just can't handle it. So of course it would make sense that, mo that more voter ID laws have also been a big part of Republicans' current push for voter restrictions, especially since part of the big lie is that millions of ineligible voters cast a ballot. They didn't. But this is definitely important, kings and queens, and we must keep our eyes and ears open to see how these proposed laws will impact us in whatever state that you are in. The trial for Derek Chauvin began last week. This is the former officer in Minneapolis who kept his knee on the neck of George Floyd for what we originally thought was eight minutes and 46 seconds. But that has been updated to reflect the true amount of time, which we now understand was nine minutes and 29 seconds. George Floyd 
subsequently died from what has been considered to be excessive force by most. However, the defense is arguing that Mr. Floyd's death on May 25, 2020 was the result of a drug overdose. During last week's testimonies that were given by some bystanders, uh, Floyd's former girlfriend and Lieutenant Zimmerman, we were able to see a range of emotions as some of these individuals took the stand. And one of the bystanders who was a, uh, a minor at the time this incident occurred, um, we didn't get a chance to see her as she testified. But one of the things that she said that just like touched me so much was when she talked about all the sleepless nights that she has had, where she has been asking George Floyd for forgiveness for not being able to do more. We also saw, you know, the neighborhood, um, I don't know, some people might say like pops, you know, older generation, um, you know, somebody who might tell you about yourself if he sees you cutting up, you know, that kind of dude in the neighborhood who said that he came up on the scene because he was just being nosy. Um, I believe his last name was McMillan. So Mr. McMillan said, that initially he was talking to George Floyd, you know, attempting to calm him down and letting him know, you know, don't resist in any kind of way. You can't win, I believe was his words, right? But he never imagined that he was going to witness George Floyd's life being taken right in front of him. And he became very emotional, broke down on the stand. They even had to take recess as a result of that. Uh, you saw all these emotions and the only thing that you could see with um, Derek Chauvin was the same um, emotionless face that we saw the day that he killed George Floyd. There was no emotion. He wasn't moved at all. People are weeping and crying and so upset about what they saw and he's just sitting there like nothing. That's amazing. I don't even understand how you feel like that. And then Lieutenant Zimmerman, who was one of the first ranking officers to take the stand, he was called to the scene after George Floyd's body was taken to the hospital. Um, he definitely made it very clear. He let the world know that the actions taken by Derek Chauvin were totally unnecessary. And those sentiments have been echoed by other ranking officers who have since taken the stand including the chief of police himself, Adaria Arredondo. He even talked about how the restraint that was used on Mr. Floyd violated department policy and that it was not something that they taught. Now the prosecution continues to make its case and I know that the world will be paying very close attention See how this case progresses and we'll be waiting for its outcome. Now, after all of that, it's only right that I talk about this next topic. One of the milestones that I will be talking about <clears throat> in this episode uh, is National Stress Awareness Month, which is usually recognized in April. 
Now, have you all ever heard the saying that stress kills? Well, the Health Resource Network has an annual campaign that began back in 1992. So during this month, healthcare professionals unite in order to raise awareness of the effects that stress has on people's everyday wellness and what can be done to combat it because ignoring stress can lead to a whole lot of health problems. How does stress impact your health? Stress can infect can affect you physically as well as mentally. So let's look at some of the physical manifestations of failing to effectively manage your stress. First up, stress and your heart. Now having a healthy heart should always be a top priority. The American Heart Association says that more research is needed to determine the part that stress plays in your heart health. However, experts agree that periods of stress can lead to behaviors that increase the risk of developing heart disease. Maybe stress might cause you to eat more. You know, sometimes you've heard people say, you know, they're eating their feelings, or you might be looking for comfort food. You know, that's something I think that's deep within, you know, that you're looking to um, console that sometimes people do through food, right? You may have a tendency to drink more alcohol. Or if you are a smoker, you may smoke even more when you're stressed. And I can definitely identify with that. When I smoked uh, and if I was under stress, I definitely noticed that I smoked a whole lot more, even to my shock, you know, where I would have to recognize, okay, something's going on here that I really have to take care of because I'm being ridiculous about smoking these cigarettes right now. It's really real. And none of these things, of course, that are done in excess are good for our cardiovascular health. Let's talk about stress and our digestion. So did you know that your gut is lined with more than 100 million neurons? Meaning that in a sense, it has its own brain. So if stress can affect the mental health of your main brain, maybe can also affect your digestive mental health too. According to Harvard Health, psychological stress can cause ongoing digestive problems, such as constipation, or at the other end of the spectrum, diarrhea. See, I bet you didn't know that it can impact you that way. But this is the reason why I bring these um, discussions, these talks to the village so that we can all learn together. Now, if you experience such symptoms for no obvious reason, you should see a doctor sooner rather than later. See if the cause could be either psychological or if it's physiological. And then, of course, there's your stress and how it affects your weight. Weight has always been an issue for me. It's been up and down all of my life. And yes, stress definitely does not help it. But one of the most visible ways that stress can affect your health is through weight gain. Research published in the Biological Psychiatry Journal 
suggests that everyday stressors can cause your body to to um, excuse me metabolize substances slower, which means that you will burn fewer calories throughout the day. Now, according to the National Health Service, obesity and even simply being overweight have been linked to a myriad of health concerns, including type 2 diabetes, coronary heart disease, certain kinds of cancers, and strokes. So to avoid these things, there is one clear course of action, and that is to look for the signs of stress and start taking the steps to control it. So during my show next week, I'll talk about the signs of stress and how we can learn to keep our stress in check. Well, beautiful people, it's about that time for me to take a walk over to my musical jukebox. This first song that I'm going to play is by a British rock band, and it was written by all four of its members for their third album, which was called X and Ray, in 2005, and it was their second single on the album. Now it reached number four on the UK singles chart, number 18 here in the US Billboard Hot Modern Rock Tracks. The song was started as a way for the lead singer to comfort his then wife, who had recently lost her father. The singer wanted to base the song on a church organ, but instead he powered up the synthesizer that was given to his then wife by her father which sat unused in our house. And he discovered that that bad boy had some amazing sounds on it. Now that singer is Chris Martin and his then wife was American actress, Gwyneth Paltrow. Here's Coldplay with Fix You. And when we come back, I will get into today's topic. When you try your best but you don't succeed When you get what you want but not what you need When you feel so tired but you can't sleep Stuck in rivers And the tears come straight Higher 
Okay, Village, so if you tuned in last week, you know that I spoke about death row, and this is part two, where um, we're going to talk about innocence, uh, the innocence project, right? When I was speaking about death row last week, I was talking about the racial implications behind its use. Now, people of color tend to receive sentences of death when the victims are white and are convicted of these crimes, even when there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that they actually committed the crime. As I mentioned previously, the color of a defendant and the victim's skin 
plays a crucial and unacceptable role in deciding who receives the death penalty in America. People of color have accounted for a disproportionate 43% of total executions since 1976, and 55% of those are currently awaiting execution. The mission for the Innocence Project is to free the staggering number of innocent people who remain incarcerated and to bring reform to the system responsible for their unjust imprisonment. The Innocence Project was established in the wake of a study by the United States Department of Justice and U.S. Senate in conjunction with the Jewish Yeshiva University's Benjamin, a, Benjamin N. Cardoza School of Law, which claimed that incorrect identification by eyewitnesses was a factor in over 70% of wrongful convictions. That's a lot. That is a lot. So in 1992, Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld realized that if DNA technology can prove people guilty of crimes, it could also prove that people who had been wrongly convicted were innocent. So they started the Innocence Project as a legal clinic at the Cardoza School of Law. Since then, DNA testing and analysis has become vital to exonerating innocent people and driving criminal justice reform. Decades of data on DNA-related and non-DNA exonerations expose systemic issues through strategic litigation, policy reform, and education. So let's talk a little bit about exoneration. Now, an exoneration occurs when a person who has been convicted of a crime is officially cleared based on new evidence of innocence. And this can occur in three ways, a pardon based on actual innocence, an acquittal at retrial, or a conviction being vacated and indictment. Now, DNA exoneration occurs when a person who has been convicted of a crime is officially cleared based on post-conviction DNA testing. So the DNA testing results were dispositive of actual innocence and central to vacating the conviction and or dismissing the indictment. So basically the DNA itself helped to find that the person who was convicted um, was uh, done so wrongly and the DNA proved their innocence after all. So much of the Innocence Project's work focuses on cases where DNA evidence, such as blood or other bodily fluids, is central to the case, which tend to be cases involving sexual assault or murder. DNA exonerations represent only a portion, about 15% of all exonerations in the US. Some of the Innocence Project's successes have resulted though in releasing people from death row. The successes of the project have fueled American opposition to the death penalty and have likely been a factor in the decision by some American states to temporarily prohibit criminal execution. Now, what are some of the causes of wrongful conviction? Well, it seems that wrongful convictions are a common occurrence 
with various causes that land innocent defendants in prison. Most common are false eyewitness accounts where the accused are incorrectly identified by viewers of a crime. This accounts for 69% of the exonerations that took place due to the Innocence Project, further proving that eyewitness accounts are unreliable. This measure has proven to be inaccurate in many police lineups as there is much bias. You know how all Black people look alike. And the suspects can be singled out based on their appearance and the frequency that they are placed in front of the witnesses. Now, I'm not sure if you guys saw either one of these movies, but <clears throat> when we're talking about eyewitness testimony, two come to mind that I can think of. One is Denzel Washington, who played Reuben Carter, the boxer in the movie, uh, The Hurricane, right? He was uh, wrongly convicted of murdering a few of the patrons that were at the bar late one night. Now he had been at the bar earlier that evening after he won his boxing match, but he had left long before. There was an eyewitness though that saw a car drive off after they heard the shots in the bar downstairs. Now, fortunately, there were some people, happened to be in Canada, they heard about the case and they came and they poured over all of the evidence, right? And they finally realized that the witness that saw the car driving away identified the wrong car. So the car that drove away was actually, yes, the car of, of the people that committed the crime. But it was, it was similar, but not the same kind of car as what Reuben Carter drove. And they were able to prove this because of the brake lights. The brake lights were different in the back of the car because it was two different models. And, and pieces of evidence like that make tremendous difference, right? And then the other movie that I think about is My Cousin Vinny. And as much as we laugh about certain things that happened in that movie, you have the African-American woman, the older lady with the Coke bottle glasses on, right? Now she's supposed to be the eyewitness who saw the two young men who killed the uh, the clerk at the gas station, okay? When my cousin Vinny takes his measurement, you know, his measuring tape, and he measures the distance from the witness box in the courtroom all the way to where she apparently was able to see these two young men, he holds up his hand. He holds up a couple of fingers and asks her how many fingers he's holding up. He's not able to answer that. And so it's stuff like that that we're talking about that puts innocent people not only in jail, but on death row. And sometimes they're actually executed. And then later it's discovered that, oops, no, they really were innocent. See, see what I'm saying? Additionally, 52% of the innocent project cases, wrongful conviction have resulted from the misapplication of forensic science. These include faulty hair comparisons, arson artifacts, and comparative bullet-led analysis. These methods of evidence collection evolve as new technology arises, but said technology can take decades to create, making cases based on faulty forensic sciences. Um, I don't know, it kind of makes it hard to overturn a case, right? If you're waiting for technology to improve. Now, in 26% of DNA exoneration cases, innocent people were coerced into making false confessions, 
Many of these false confessors went on to plead guilty to crimes they did not commit, usually so that they could avoid a harsher sentence or even the death penalty. Currently, there is a racial aspect of this issue where many Black people are discriminated against during both their trial and while they're in jail. The hashtag Black Behind Bars has allowed those exonerated after false confessions to share their stories and the injustice they faced due to the failure of the government justice system. Another large con contribution of wrongful convictions is fabricated testimonies that falsely incriminate defendants. The Innocence Project has found that 17% of its cases have been caused by false testimonies, allowing the person who gave the testimony a shorter or better sentence while the accused face harsher repercussions. Many of these stories are given by inmates who have been given an incentive to falsely testify against certain people with, rec with rewards such as reduction of their sentences or leniency in prison, okay? So, you know, maybe like a criminal informant could be somebody that might, you know, fit the bill in that situation. Now, when it comes to overturned convictions, as of November, 2019, 367 people previously convicted of serious crimes in the US had been exonerated by DNA testing since 1989, 21 of whom had been sentenced to death. Almost all, 99% of the wrongful convictions were males, are kings, right? with minority groups constituting approximately 70%, 61% African-American and 8% Latino. The National Registry of Exonerations lists over 1,500 convicted defendants who were exonerated through DNA and non-DNA evidence from January 1st, 1989 through April 12th, 2015. <laughs> And here are a few examples. So in 2004, Daryl Hunt was exonerated after serving 19 and a half years in prison of a life sentence for the rape and murder of a newspaper copy editor by the name of Deborah Sykes. In 2007, after an investigation begun by the Innocence Project, James Calvin Tillman, was exonerated after serving 16 and a half years in prison for a rape he did not commit. And he was sentenced to five years. And in 2014, Glenn Ford was exonerated in the murder of Isidore Newman. Ford, an African-American, had been convicted by an all white jury without any physical evidence linking him to the crime and with his testimony withheld. And he had served 30 years on death row in Angola prison before he was released. So the Innocent Project, although it has originated in New York City, it accepts cases from any part of the United States. The majority of clients helped are of low socioeconomic status and have used all possible legal options for justice. Many clients hope that DNA evidence will prove their innocence. 
that the emergence of DNA testing allows those who have been wrongly convicted of crimes to challenge their cases. The Innocence Project also works with the local, state, and federal levels of law enforcement, legislatures, and other programs to prevent further wrongful convictions. About 3,000 prisoners write to the Innocence Project annually, and at any given time, the Innocence Project is evaluating anywhere between like six to 8,000 potential cases. Now, all potential clients go through an extensive screening process to determine whether or not they're likely to be innocent. If they pass the process, the Innocence Project takes up their case. In almost half of the cases that the Innocence Project takes on, which is about 42%, uh, percent, the DNA actually confirms their guilt, okay? 43% of those clients are proven innocent. And evidence uh, that was inconclusive and not probative usually happens in about 15% of cases. In about 40% of all DNA exoneration cases, law enforcement officials identified the actual perpetrator based on the same DNA test results that led to an exoneration. Now, when it comes to funding for the Innocence Project, as of June 2018, they receive about 55% of their funding from individual contributions, 16% from foundations, another 16% from events, 8% from investments, and the remainder are from corporations or other sources. The Innocence Project, the founder of the Innocence Network, which is an organization of law and journalism schools and public defense offices that collaborate to help convicted felons prove their innocence. 46 American states, along with several other countries, are part of the network. And in 2010, 29 people were exonerated worldwide from the work of the members of this organization. The Innocence Network brings together a growing number of innocence organizations from across the United States as well as including members from other English-speaking common law countries, such as Australia, Canada, Ireland, New Zealand, and the UK. Now, those who are wrongly convicted of crimes are also, also vastly undercompensated. In the US alone, just 32 states provide exonerated people with some monetary compensation for time served. And even in those states, the maximum payout is nothing compared to time lost. Now Village, if you are interested in becoming involved in the movement to free the innocent, here are some ways that you may be able to help. You can donate to organizations like the Innocence Project and Innocence Network. You can support legislation for criminal justice reform. You can vote for candidates, including judges and district attorneys, whose platforms include criminal justice reform, or you can simply answer the call to jury duty because we need educated jurors who can make informed decisions. Now this last song for the evening is a folk rock song that was written by Canadian singer Leonard Cohen. And it was originally released on his album, Various Positions in 1984. An artist by the name of John Cale was the first to cover this song, which then inspired American artist 
Jeff Buckley to record a version of his own. This song was featured in the film Shrek in 2001. Many other arrangements have been performed in recordings and in concert. And in fact, it is said that there are over 300 versions of this song. The version that I'm gonna play for you this evening was released in 2016, and it's by the acapella group Pentatonics. Here is Alleluia. I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. You needed proof You saw her bathing on the roof Her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you She tied you to the kitchen chair She broke your throne and she cut your hair And from your lips she drew the
such a beautiful song. Love that. <laughs> okay, beautiful people, it's time for our inspirational story. And this week's story is called, There Was Once a Boy. There was once a boy who was growing up in a very wealthy family. One day, his father decided to take him on a trip to show him how others lived who were less fortunate. His father's goal was to help his son appreciate everything that he has been given in life. The boy and his father pulled up to a farm where a very poor family lived. They spent several days on the farm, helping the family work for their food and take care of their land. When they left the farm, father asked his son if he enjoyed their trip and if he had learned anything during the time they spent with this family. The boy quickly replied, it was fantastic. That family is so lucky. Confused, his father asked what he meant by that. The boy said, well, we only have one dog, but that family has four and they also have chickens. We have four people in our home, but they have 12. They have so many people to play with. We do have a pool in our backyard, but they have a river running through their property that is endless. We have lanterns outside so we can see at night, but they have the wide open sky and the beautiful stars to give them wonder and light. We have a patio, but they have the entire horizon to enjoy. They have endless fields to run around in and play. We have to go to the grocery store, but they are able to grow their own food. Our high fence protects our property and our family, but they don't need such a limiting structure because their friends protect them. The father was absolutely speechless. Finally, the boy added, thank you for showing me how rich people live they are, they are so lucky. <laughs> so what's the moral of the story? Well, true wealth and happiness are not measured by material belongings. Being around the people you love, enjoying the beautiful natural environment and having freedom are much more valuable. A rich life can mean different things to different people. So what are your values and priorities? Because if you have whatever it is that's important to you, you can consider yourself the very wealthy. Well, kings and queens, we have come to the end of another show. I do hope that the information provided will be of help to you. Remember, it's always a good idea to do your own research, no matter what the topic is, especially if your life is involved. And I would just like to let you guys know, Village, that next week's episode will be the finale for season two. But don't fret, because season three will be here before you know it. So I'm going to get busy working on that for you. So I just want to let you know that will wrap up the information I have for you about Stress Awareness Month next week. Thank you so much for tuning in this week, and I will look forward to being with you all again next week for the finale. Please be sure to follow Village Mentality on Instagram and Facebook at villagementality.ck and as in Mary. 
And just remember, God has got me and he's got you too. Be blessed, beautiful people. And here's the brighter days.